Heaven, we're so thankful to you. So thankful that you've given us salvation through Jesus. We're so thankful that you've given us the book of of Acts that outlines for us so clearly the plan of salvation and the hope that you give us. Be with us, Father, tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd say, as it says on the screen, let the race begin. Let the race begin. And, and Peter, uh, uh, Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course, a race, and I've kept the faith. I hope that every one of us can take that idea in mind and make sure that during our time, everyone can be where we ought to be. That we can make a statement similar to what Paul makes at this particular time, that I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. We know what's waiting for us after that. I want to take a few moments here in the very beginning. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13 and 14. And I hope you have your Bible with you. If not, there's one in front of you in the pew. You can use it. And we're going to be referring to several things in those chapters as we go. But I want to set the stage just a little bit before we get into that particular Uh, passage. We need to know what leads up to that passage. We need to to know what's what's taking place prior to this that makes it necessary that these chapters be there. We're going to notice one thing about these chapters when we get to them, and that is the simple fact that this is a, a great turning point in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters deals with a lot of things that we're going to summarize for you in just a moment. And then beginning with chapter 13, we've got a total different approach. Not a different plan of salvation, not a different way of obedience to the gospel, but something different for us. As you know, Chapter 1 of the book of Acts is, is interesting for us. It, it, we, we can kindly picture the apostles. If you can think for a moment, Jesus has been crucified. He's been put in the tomb. Three days later, came out of the tomb. He spent about 40 days with the apostles various times of seeing them and various other places that he was. And here they're meeting with him in Acts chapter 1. Not only is he giving them some encouragement and some things that tells them what he wants them to do, but they envision him as he ascends up into heaven. I don't know about you, But wouldn't that be an exciting adventure? Wouldn't that be something that, that would make me really want to understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? 
and that he is the only way of salvation for us as we watch him ascend into the heavens. You see, he's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. We also notice chapter 2. Some interesting things take place. The apostles are all together. They're meeting together with a group of Jews at that particular time, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they all began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Now, they talked different languages. Those there understood the fact that how can all of us hear in the language wherein we were born? The Holy Spirit made it possible. And they accused them of being drunk. And Peter says, we're not drunken as you suppose. It's just the ninth hour of the day. And then he began, if you notice on over in Acts 2, to preach to them a powerful lesson. I want you to notice something here. This is the beginning of one great movement, obedience to Jesus Christ, the establishment of the church, and the preaching of that gospel to people in the Jewish community. Peter stood before them and says, we're not drunk as you suppose, it's just the ninth hour of the day. And then he began to preach about Jesus. He told them that this was the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament, and then he be began talking about Jesus. And when he had finished talking about Jesus, talking about the, uh, the, the, the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then he says, as he's talking to them, what all is necessary. Some of the men said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Jesus told them to repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if I remember right, 3,000 obeyed the gospel. I, that that, that, that kind of blows my mind, doesn't it, yours? 3,000 obeyed the gospel. If you follow on just a little bit further, you'll notice in the fourth chapter that that number is now up to 5,000. But there's one thing I want you to keep in mind. This preaching is done to the Jews. It was necessary for that to be done. And we remember even the Jews were having trouble with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the seventh chapter of Acts? Stephen preached an outstanding lesson that it was good for them at that time about Jesus, about his uh, death on the cross and what he meant for them. And do you remember what happened? They took him out and stoned him to death. How dare he speak like that? And we're introduced to one other man at that time we're going to be looking at very closely in chapters 13 
uh, 12 and th- uh, 13 and 14. Saul. Saul was approving of what was taking place and he was holding the garments of those who were stoning Stephen. We're not told that he threw a rock, but he may have. He was encouraging them as he did. On over in chapter 9. Now we see in chapter 8 a lot of things that Saul is doing and this persecution that he's brought upon the, the church and those who are holding him, him strong. We, know, we understand that. And we want you to know some of these things about the things that were taking place and stoning of Stephen and but then the conversion of Saul. You know that story. When he was shown that great light and was told to go into the city and it'd be told him what he must do. Three days and three nights without food and water in prayer. Praying to God. Now the world around about us today would actually probably tell us that he was saved when he saw the light. No, he wasn't. You remember another story. A story that is so important. Saul was told what to do. He arose immediately and was baptized. And then went out preaching the gospel. He's, the, he's been the enemy. He's been opposed to this all this time. Now he's preaching the gospel. Preaching it to the Jews. Numbers of them are obeying the gospel. But I want you to skip on over to, to, to chapter 10. If you remember there, Peter had a vision. Now, Cornelius was a centurion of the Roman army. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And he had been a good, dedicated man. Totally given to God. He was one that helped the Jews. He was one that built things for them. And he was one that often prays. The Lord caused a vision to come to him. A vision that told him to send for Peter and he'd bring him words whereby he and his house might be saved. And he did. He sent message. Messengers. Plural. To Peter. Peter was not in the same house. Not in the same town. Not in the same territory. With him at the time. And they made the trip to the house where Peter was. Peter had a vision. There was a large sheet bound up with the four corners with all kinds of four-footed beasts and and creation in, in that sheet. And it was lowered before him. And a voice told him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never killed or eat anything that's common or unclean. Three times that sheet was lowered. Three times the Lord said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Three times Peter said, no, not so. 
Now it so happened that while that was taking place, Peter was upstairs waiting on lunch to be prepared. And while he was waiting, the men from Cornelius' house came. Now Peter had to get his mind in order before he'd go downstairs and, and talk to them. He had to understand what the vision meant and try to get something in mind. I don't think he understood it all at that point, but he went down to them. When he saw them, they weren't Jews. He didn't really know at this point how he's going to do, so he had them spend the night. And the next morning, he said, we'll go with you and go back. And all the way, he was debating on that vision that he'd seen. He went in and met Cornelius and he began to speak to Cornelius about the gospel because it dawned on him that the message of God is for all people. We're going to see a little bit more about that a little bit later on, but just think that in mind. And so Peter finally preached Cornelius and his household were baptized that day immediately. When they came and they, Peter's uh, trip, that Cornelius to Cornelius, his sermon, the conversion of that first Gentile is the beginning of a turning point in the book of Acts. Remember in Acts 11 and verse 19, Now those who were scattered after the persecution arose. Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. They had to learn that the gospel is not a message for one group of people. The gospel is a message for all people. Now, now what we're seeing at this point is an evangelistic church. Here are people trying to understand how to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people they insisted it was. But I want you to understand something. This evangelism begins at home. Sometimes I have trouble just keeping, keeping up with what I need to be putting on that screen. So help me out there. <laughs> you see, as, as the apostles, remember Acts 11, 20, 22? But some of them were the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, and who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenistic, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now, I, I, I want you to think about that for a moment. 
I want you to think about the evangelism that they're starting. It was an evangelism that was reaching out to the lost. Now, I don't think, I think it's only logical that this evangelism has to begin at home. If we aren't interested in the souls round about us, we won't be interested in those around the world. This congregation was founded by great evangelists, Acts 11, verse 19. Some of them preached only to the Jews, but in verse 20 we read a moment ago that some preached to the Grecians. Now, wouldn't we willing to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without regard to individual persons. God blesses that work. And there the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Even when Barnabas came, Barnabas tried to plead with them to, to cleave to the Lord with purpose of heart. And much people were added to the Lord. It's only with that interest that successful mission can begin. Now I want you to notice something else. In that same 17th chapter, we have a lot of message there. Notice how they were involved when the missionaries were sent out. I think this is interesting. They fasted and prayed and laid hands on them and sent them away. Now we're talking about the, the, the church in Antioch, Antioch of Syria. We'll notice some of that difference in just a moment. But I want you to notice also that Primarily, this was to the Jews. It wasn't indifferent. It wasn't some kind of a removed people writing out a check and sending it some far off missionary. They not only assisted with their funds, but they also fasted and prayed and participated with self-sacrifice, laid hands on them. Now, now get something in mind. Laying hands on them did not impart to them the Holy Spirit. The church in, in Antioch did not have that privilege. That was the apostles doing. The apostles could do that. Nobody else could. But they laid hands on them and expressed fellowship with them. That's what it was doing. You're, you're part of us. We're laying hands on you to, to impress upon you the fact that this is fellowship. This is what we want to do. Now, they were sent out. And they were sent out by the whole church. And they reported to the whole church when they returned. Despite the chaotic times of the Old Testament history, God was at work to fulfill his plan to bring Jesus into the world. And I think it's encouraging to realize that now it's the acts, it's working, that doing, it's working. God's in control. Often our world seems out of control. 
And I'm not sure that the world has ever been feeling out of control as much as it is today. It's not in control as far as the Lord's concerned. Senseless acts of violence and arson, bombing, shootings, rapes, flood the news. We have a nurse that sits with us every five days a week. And at the noon, noon hour, I turn on the news and I tell Olu's her name. I tell Olu, let, 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 let's see who got shot today. And that's about what it is, isn't it? Who got killed? You see, when such violence occurs, we cry, why? Why is that? We wonder how God can let tragedies like that continue. Can he let them happen in the first and then continue? We may not be able to answer every question to our satisfaction. But it's comforting to know that even when our understanding is limited, God's still in control. The Christian view of history is optimistic. It always has been. It's certain that always history is going somewhere according to the purpose of God. Know that God can turn tragedy into triumph if we remain faithful to Him. Romans 8.28 is a powerful passage that tells you that. One preacher I read divided his lesson as far as the next chapter is concerned, chapter 13, which we're coming to that point. He divided that into three different steps. Enemies are envious. The chapter's 45 verses 45 and 47 of chapter 11. And, second, and secondly, truth seekers are taught, 48 to 50. And God is glorified, verses 51 and 52. Now I want you to understand some things. Right, let, let, let's, let's let the race begin. We really want to see some things that are important. I want you to notice the church in Antioch. And please notice something. You're going to see before we get through two Antiochs. One in, in Syria and the other in Pisidia. And Paul and Barnabas are going to be at both of them at various times. So in, uh, I'll show you a map in a few minutes and we'll have that opportunity where we can look and define what's going on. I want you to notice in chapter 13, though, that there were certain prophets and teachers there. We're not told there were pro uh, uh, apostles or not told that there was uh, any kind of special guidance, but there were some prophets and, and there were some teachers there. And we notice something else. I want you to notice a list of some teachers that are present. There was Barnabas, who was from Cyprus, Barnabas is well known to many people because you've read of him in the early part of the book of Acts. He was there. He's from the island of Cyprus. We're going to see that island in just a moment. It's the first place that Paul 
and Barnabas went when they were sent on the missionary journey. He was the uncle of John Mark. You'll find John Mark with them here in the early part. He was a brother of Mary whose house the prayer meeting of chapter 12 was held. If you remember, Peter had been in jail and was led out of jail by the Holy Spirit. And there was a prayer meeting going on in Mary's house for Peter while he is in jail. And Peter knocked on the door. And the young lady who was in charge came to the door and, and, and understood it was Peter. And she closed the door and went running back and tell everybody Peter's at the door. And they said, no, he's in jail. Finally, it was learned that he was there. And then there is Simon who was called Niger. I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. I want you to notice that exactly what took place. They trusted God. They were crucifying Jesus at this particular time. And as they were crucifying him, Jesus carried out his uh, uh, cross. He's been tortured, he's been persecuted, he's been beaten, and all just too weak and too bad beaten to carry that tomb, that cross there. Verse 32, now as they came out, taking Jesus to the cross, Jesus carrying it, they found a man of Cyrene. Did you notice his name? Simon. Simon of Cyrene. Here in Acts 13 is Simon of Cyrene. Simon that was called Niger. Cyrene is an island in Africa. Matthew 27, uh, verse 32, tells us what I just read. Could this be the same man that bore the cross of Jesus? Could possibly do it. I'm sure there may have been two men in the, on the island of, uh, of Cyprus that, that were, uh, or Cyrene rather, that was a, uh, could be called that, or could be back there somewhere, but that could well be the person that carried that cross. There's Lucas of Cyrene. Remember, Cyrene is a little island off the coast of Africa. It's not surprising when we read back here that uh, Niger, Simon was called Niger. That word Niger means black. I don't know whether it has any reference to do with the race of the individual or not, or why he was called that. I want you to know something. The color of a person's skin doesn't matter as far as God's concerned. I don't know about you, but I did not have a choice when I was born as to what color my skin would be. I didn't have a choice when I was born as to who my parents would be. God gave me that. 
Whatever, whatever race I am, whatever race you are, God gave it to me. We stand equally with God. That Lucas of Cyrene is only mentioned twice in the New Testament. Once here in, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, and then in, uh, also again in Romans 16 and verse 21. But we don't know for sure that's the same person. Just, just the name Lucas is mentioned in Romans chapter 13. If you remember Romans chapter 13, it's a chapter part when Paul's mentioning all the people that he knows there. And all there's a, there's a host of them. And that's, that's one of them. And then there was a manian who was brought up with Herod. Now, I don't know what that means. That phrase brought up with Herod, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I could, it could mean a foster brother. Could mean that, that he was just a member of the court. Could mean that he was just a, a, a neighbor that was there and they, were, they grew up together. And last of all, there was Saul. Now I want, I want you to have something in mind right at this point. You'll notice from this point on, it's Barnabas and Saul. Until we get on a little farther and there's a change in the name. Why? Think about it for a moment. You see... I wonder if there's any implication of the status in the church at Antioch. He'd been with the church for a little over a year. and was probably considered a protege of Barnabas. But notice verse 4. Verse 4. Rather interesting passage taking place. Chapter 13, verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Antioch. But now, wait a minute. Verses 2 and 3 tell us that uh, though they had found no cause, uh, uh, that they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, Now separate me to me, Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Now separate them for me. Here the church was sending them out on a missionary trip. And they were the ones that went. They were selected. I want you to notice what it says. I just read it to you. Now notice where they first went. Uh, if I can figure out how to do this and get there. There we go. I want you to keep up with the blue line. This is Antioch in Syria. The blue line that we're going to follow first, it goes all the way around. When they arrived at, uh, here at the island of Cyprus, the island is uh, over 100 miles long and about 40 miles wide. They stopped at the first place in there and they began at that particular place, 
preaching to the Jews. Now just keep in mind what we've been talking about. And when they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They also had John, Mark as their assistant. Think, think for a minute now. We understand Paul. We understand the fact that he had the opportunity when he went into a synagogue, we'll notice in just a moment, he had the privilege of standing up and speaking. They, they would say, if you have some words to say, speak them to these, the brethren. So it was, an, it was an opportunity for him with an audience ready-made that he's going to speak to. But what about the other? Now, they moved from Salamis, the first place they landed on the island, went all the way across the island. As you notice, that goes all the way across that island to the place on the other side. And it was interesting there that they had the opportunity to preach the word. Proconsul, the, I guess we could say the governor of the island or somebody who was in charge of, the, uh, of that island, was there, wanted to speak with uh, Barnabas and Saul. And as he did, he had a, he had a helper. He had a person that worked with him. And, and uh, he was Elamus. He was a, a, a sorcerer. He wanted more than anything else to keep his governor, proconsul, whatever you want to call it, from hearing how to be saved. And so he tried every way in the world that he could until Saul it, uh, and his party caused him to get, be blind. Now, we're, he, he's going to leave, and we're sure that the proconsul is the believed. He, we're told that he did. That, uh, oh, uh, now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you should be blind seeing the sun for a time and immediately a dark mist fell upon him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. Interesting to me that they left there traveled about 150 miles by ship up to the place that you see in the light tan color just on the shore of the ocean. About 150 miles. Now, I want you to keep one thing in mind. Paul, or Saul and Barnabas, in their travels, did not have the privilege of traveling like you and I do. They were walking, or they were riding on a ship that was sailing that 150 miles. Now, how long it's going to take? Who knows? It depends on where the, if it's got a good southern wind that's going to blow them right up there to Pamphylia, then it won't take too long. If the wind is something contrary to that, then it may take longer. 
And when they get off of there, they've got a, a, another 150 miles, or, or a little over 100 miles, to go up to Antioch of Pisidia. I want to talk about that just for a moment. Between the shoreland there and Antioch of Pisidia, Pisidia it's about a, a hundred miles or so. They'll have to travel through some of the most treacherous territory in the world. Hazardous mountain pathways, forest with all kinds of, uh, of wild animals and dangers from robbers. Maybe that's what Paul had in mind when he said in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 26 that he had been in danger of robbers was it to Antioch and the churches of this area to whom Paul wrote in Galatians? Remember something here before we go on. Too many buttons for me to use. This, that's right. Even if I put, put that back there, you can't see it, can you? Pam, Pamphylia, have I been doing that? <laughs> Somebody correct me when I point it the wrong direction. <laughs> there's, there, there's Pamphylia, the, the yellow kind. And they land here at the edge of that. And we're going to follow the blue line, so keep, keep that in mind. I'm told that Pamphylia was probably a low-lying coastal province. I'm told it was abounding in marshland and swamps and therefore a lot of mosquitoes. I don't know for sure, but it could well have been that Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4 verse 13 you know that because of the physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at first Pamphylia is that low leg marshland filled with mosquitoes many think that Paul contacted malaria in that area and they decided quickly to go up the mountaintop to Antioch. To Antioch from there is about uh, uh, 350 feet high. Mountaintop of mountains. Terrible places to travel. But I'm sure if he got malaria, malaria there, he was anxious to get up to a different area and maybe cool off a little bit because I'm sure it was hot there. Now we don't know whether that's the case or not. But we do know, Paul wrote again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 and 8 that he had a thorn in the flesh. Maybe that was malaria, different attacks of that malaria. But we don't know for sure. They came to Antioch. And it's rather interesting to me. We know what's taken place. And after they came to Antioch, verse 15, 
they went immediately into the synagogue. Why? Because there is a special audience waiting for Paul. I want you to go back and read something else, though. All the time that we've been studying tonight, it's Barnabas and Saul. Remember that? Look at verse 9. Then Saul, who is also called Paul. Skip on down then to, to verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Pergamum and Pamphylia, and John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. That may be another reason why they didn't stay long in Pergamum when they arrived there. They came to Antioch and immediately one of the men in the synagogue, one of the men said, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation to the people, say so. And Paul began preaching a sermon. I think very similar to what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. Most of the rest of chapter 2 in Acts 13 deals with that particular sermon. And they preached, the, God, God, Paul preached the gospel to him. And notice first, verses 48 and 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. In verse 49, the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But notice how the Jews responded. At the conclusion of Paul's sermon, he said, The Lord commanded us, I've sent you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. But the Jews, stirred up devout prominent women and chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. And Peter, uh, uh, Barnabas and, and Paul shook the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. I want you to think about what's taking place. Iconium, if, if you remember right, is down this blue line right there. Oh, up here, up here, up here. <laughs> this same blue line right here, down to that corner, that's Iconium. <laughs> I can't hardly get you all to turn your head around, can I? <laughs> Thank you for letting me know. I get involved in what I'm doing. I'm there. That's in front of me, you know. I'm sorry. But I want you to know they came to Iconium and it's rather interesting. Certain men came from Judea after, they'd come, after they had come to Iconium. And they were preaching the word there as well. 
they opened the door back earlier to the Gentiles. When they had come to, uh, to Antioch, where they had been commanded, commended by the grace of God for the work which they had preached and uh, completed when they had been there and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to them, so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. But now, we're going to go through, rather quickly through some of the travels of Paul. And now the name, the name is not Barnabas and Saul. It's not Barnabas and Paul. Now the name, as you'll find it, listed from this point on is Paul and Barnabas. Paul's going to be doing the preaching. And certain men traveled this way, don't I? Certain men traveled from Antioch down to Iconium just to persecute Paul and Barnabas. Notice that in the very first verse of chapter 15, or chapter 15, yeah. But we're not interested in that. We've got to get back here to chapter 14. It happened in Iconium that the, when they went together, the synagogue of the Jews and spoke that great multitude, both the Jews and of the Greeks, believed, multitudes believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and, and, and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done in their hands. But the multitude was divided. Part sided with the Jews, part sided with the apostles, and when the violent attempt was made by both Gentiles and, and Jews with their rulers, to abuse and stone them. They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby. Back this way. They fled to Lystra and Derby. There's Lystra just a little ways below Iconium and Derby's out at the end of this blue line. They went down to that Lystra and Derby and as a result, they were preaching the gospel there at Lystra, and certain men, a certain man without strength, he was healed. Paul speaking, observing him intently, and how, now he, he healed him. And they tried to say, well, the gods have come to visit us. Referring to Paul and, and Barnabas as the different gods. But they refused that idea. And as we think about it, it's interesting to me that wherever they teach the Word of God, they were punished. They were persecuted. It had been, they'd been run out of Antioch for preaching the gospel. They had barely escaped with their lives from Iconium preaching the gospel. But these facts didn't keep them from pre preaching the gospel wherever they went. Paul's experiences in Lystra were among the most traumatic in his long career as a missionary. When he wrote to Timothy, who was a native in Lystra, he spoke of persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, 
and at Lystra. Second Peter chapter two, or three, verse eleven. And when he wrote to the to the Corinthians, he mentioned once that he was stoned. Second Corinthians eleven twenty three through twenty six. And one was only at Lystra, that one, only at Lystra where he was stoned. He later said in Galatians 6 and verse 17, next to the last verse of the book of Galatians, he's made a statement there, I bury my body, brand marks of Jesus. He bore in his body what he's saying, if you read it from different translations, the marks of being stoned, scars. Lystra. Now, now think about this for a moment. He did, barely escaped from Antioch. He came to Iconium and they were trying to persecute him and put him to death there. He made it to, uh, uh, what was the other one there at that point? Uh, yeah, I the one down just below there, and that's Derby down there. All of those were places that were persecuting him severely. And do you know what Paul did next? Where would he go? Every place he's been was threatening him with death. If you were a preacher, and you were in that kind of situation where your life has been threatened and you barely escaped with your life, where would you go next? Think about something. I want you to think what Paul did. If you notice, at this particular point, we're going to pick up the the red line. He went from Derby back to Lystra, from Lystra to Iconium, from Iconium to Antioch. And interestingly enough, when he get, went to those places in every church, they appointed elders. You'd think with all the suffering that was there and the danger that was involved that he'd try to find someplace else to go. He went back and appointed elders. He went back and helped them. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word of, uh, in Pamphylia, they went down to Italia. Well, we didn't bother much about Italia, but of course it's a, it's a little, uh, uh, little place just barely on this edge, right here at the edge of the ocean. And uh, Paul went there and preached the gospel there. And, and, but now, when they've been run out of those places, uh, persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, 2 Timothy 3.11, I read a moment ago. And when he wrote this to the Corinthians, he also mentioned the same things. Terrible scars. Now, when they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples. That's Derby. 
And when they had preached the gospel of that city, they made many disciples returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Another interesting passage is found in verse 23. So when they had appointed elders, I can't read that often enough for you. Why get put themselves in a position of danger? Because the church was that important. God's work was that important for them. They not only appointed elders in every church, but they prayed with them and fasting commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed, and then completed the circuit. They came to Pisidia through Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word Pamphylia, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed. They left there. At that point, sailing, this red, or all the way back to Antioch of Syria. How long it took them to sail, I don't know. That completed the circuit for them. They stayed there a long time with the disciples before they went out, or, or this is after they came to Antioch in Syria. They stayed there a long time. They, the church sent them on this missionary journey. And when they came back, what's logical for them to do is to spend some time with the church that sent them, encouraging them and strengthening them and helping them. That's what Paul was doing. What a marvelous thing it is to recognize that Paul was as such a great leader that he wanted the elders established in every church. He wanted the church to be excited and working missionarily for the spread of the gospel. What a, what a message it is for us. Bow me for a, for a word of prayer. Holy Father, what an example you've given us of mission work. What an example you've given us of the power of the Word of God and the power that you've given to those who do your Word. Father, help us share with others the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. There's some food available for you downstairs, so go down and have uh, some encouraging food, okay? Good to be with you.